One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Ancestry.com.au. You've seen the faded sepia photograph, but how tall was your great grandfather? How much did he weigh? What colour were his eyes? And did he really have a mermaid tattoo? These are the sort of details that can turn a family tree into a colourful and compelling personal history. And they're the sort of details you can sometimes discover in military and or police records at Ancestry.com.au. I use Ancestry constantly to research and write this podcast, and it could help you piece your past together too. For more information, go to Ancestry.com.au because there could be more to your story. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me, Michael Adams, in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders, past and present. It's half past five in the morning, Friday the 26th of August, 1803, and in Sydney, a gent named Mr. Man has already started his day. This early riser is walking along a track that extends from Back Row, the eastern part of the town, that a few years from now will be renamed Phillip Street. Mr. Man's heading towards Farm Cove, where indeed there are farms, along with Mr. Palmer's windmill and bakehouse. Fifteen years after white colonisation began on Gadigal land, Sydney remains a tiny, far-flung outpost of the British Empire. The white population of all of New South Wales totals just some 7,000 people. More than half of them cling to the little patch of harbour land around Sydney Cove. The exact population isn't known, but whatever it is, this morning that figure has dropped by one. In the pre-dawn light of the new day, Mr. Man sees a body crumpled on the ground beside the track. There can be no doubt that this man has already met his maker. His head is shockingly battered, and the guard of his cutlass is buried so deep in his brains, it's like it's been fused there. The cutlass's sheath is nearby, and the man's hat lays some 20 yards away. Someone in Sydney has committed bloody murder, and they've done it very recently. The man's body is still warm, the wounds fresh and bleeding. Near this breathless corpse, as the Sydney Gazette will describe it, there's another unlikely weapon, the wheel of a barrow. It's blood spattered and it's being used to batter the victim. This dead man isn't any old colonist or new convict. He's a constable, Constable Joseph Luca. For the past seven years, Joseph Luca has been a free man and a member of the Night Watch, those guardians of the law entrusted by the governor to keep Sydney safe during the dark hours. Now, this constable has taken his place in history as the first Australian policeman killed in the execution of his duty. I'm Michael Adams, and this is the Forgotten Australia episode, our first cop killer, the luckiest man unhung, and the birth of Australian true crime reporting. It is a mouthful, but there's a lot to this story, so much that I've had to split it into two parts. 
part two will go on general release soon, but you can hear it now early and ad-free if you're an Apple or Patreon supporter. A big thank you to new Patreon supporter Stacy Burns. If you'd like to join Stacy and help me make this podcast, you can become an Apple or Patreon supporter for about the price of a cup of coffee every month. Even better, there are no cups to worry about recycling. As a thank you, you'll get a show shout-out, and you'll get early ad-free episodes. You'll also get exclusive bonus episodes. Links are in your show notes, and you can try before you buy with free trials that will give you complete access. Just remember to cancel before the expiry date, and you won't pay a cent. Also, many thanks to Craig and Mary from Good Earth Books in Wentworth Falls for hosting a lovely launch of my book, The Murder Squad. Finally, cheers also to Stephen Carl and Michael Bragg for really lovely email feedback about the Bolts from the Blue episode. Bolts from the Blue was a what are the chances yarn that related three sudden deaths in Grafton in the early and middle decades of the 20th century. If you've not heard it yet, it's not spoiling much to say it was about a trio of unfortunates who did nothing wrong. They were just in the wrong places at the wrong times and fell victim to freakish fates. Constable Joseph Luca's end also came about because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But he ran afoul of the wrong people. His death wasn't chance or a coincidence. He was a cop doing his job and he was killed in cold blood. Yet, Joseph Luca's murder set in train events that would then result in one of Australia's strangest twists of fate. Stranger even perhaps than the events in the Bolts from the Blue episode. This twist of fate involved a man who had done wrong and who had found himself in the worst possible place at the worst possible time. Yet what happened to him was so incredible that many who witnessed it were convinced they'd just seen history written by the hand of God. What was also lucky, at least for our purposes, is that all of this unfolded just six months after the Sydney Gazette and New South Wales Advertiser, Australia's very first newspaper, had started publication. This weekly paper, which from the first issue had chronicled true colonial crime and the grislier the better, would follow the Joseph Luca case as closely as possible with its limited resources. This episode is based on a close reading of those Sydney Gazette articles, along with convict and colonial records found at ancestry.com.au. Joseph Luca was 38 years old in 1803. He'd been in Australia a dozen years by then. Back in June 1789, he'd been convicted of stealing lead worth £10 in London. For his crime, he was sentenced to seven years' transportation, and he arrived on the Third Fleet in August 1791. By 1796, he'd served his time and became an emancipist. While other freed convicts turned to farming or took up a trade, Joseph joined the Night Watch. This was the proto-police force that had been established by Governor Arthur Phillip in August 1789 and that was comprised of trusted convicts and former convicts. By the end of winter 1803, Joseph Luca had been a constable longer than he'd been a convict in the colony. He'd also married and lived in a house in Back Row. One of Joseph's neighbours, Mary Breeze, was a brothel keeper. 
Around 5 o'clock in the afternoon, on Thursday the 25th of August, 1803, Mary locked up her premises and strolled into Sydney town. Where did she go? We don't know. Maybe it was Mr Lord's warehouse, where he was selling imported goods such as clothing, stout canvas and cordage of all sizes that had been landed from the ship roller. Or perhaps Mary was going to Mr Driver's place in Chapel Row, where he was selling green tea at 10 shillings per pound, along with other goodies ranging from sugar and butter and Brazil tobacco to candies, soap, fish plates and plain and coloured jugs. Like I say, we don't know Mary's movements. What we do know is that when she came home around 8 that evening, she found that her back door had been prized open so that villains could break into her house. They'd known she was out, and they'd known exactly what they were looking for. These burglars had left her clothing untouched, even though garments were always in high demand and could be sold. Instead, they'd carried off Mary's small desk. This was where she kept her money. That evening, it had held 50 Spanish dollars, equivalent to 12 and a half pounds, along with three guineas, two gold coins worth two pounds each, and a small amount in copper coins. The desk also contained paperwork relating to the purchase of her house and various utensils and knickknacks. Mary sounded the alarm by reporting the theft to Chief Constable John Redman. This police chief ordered the men who were on the first half of the night watch to keep an eye on the bush near Back Row. This was a large area of dense scrub where we can now find the State Library of New South Wales and part of the Western Botanic Gardens. It made sense for the night watch to stake out this landscape. The burglar or burglars couldn't very well have hauled the desk through Back Row, Pit Row or Sydney's other streets without being seen. It'd be logical to take the desk into the brush, ransack it then and there, or stash it until they could return. That night, Mary also sought out her neighbour, Constable Joseph Luca. She told him what had happened. He told her he wasn't on duty until the clock struck 12, but when it did, he'd be on the case. Constable Luca told Mary Breeze that he had a fair idea of who was responsible for the break-in. This was another of their neighbours, Isaac Simmons. More precisely, Constable Isaac Simmons. Unlike Joseph, he was still a convict, having only arrived in Sydney earlier in 1803. Isaac and his similarly shady cronies, two of whom were also constables, were staying in the boarding house that was run by a woman named Sarah Lawrence. She rented single or shared rooms called skillings. Sarah's place stood on the opposite corner of Back Row to Mary's house. Constable Luca told Mary he would stake out the bush also. His theory was that the villains might return at daylight. Whoever they were, if he caught them red-handed, they'd likely be making a one-way trip of one sort or another, either to the gallows or if His Excellency the Governor was feeling merciful, they might get off with transportation to the hellhole of Norfolk Island. At midnight, Constable Luca's shift began and he went out into the darkness. Dawn was marked in Sydney by a morning drum known as the Ravalli Beat. This let everyone know it was time to get up and get to work. 
But before this rise and suffer signal had thumped out on Friday morning, a Sydney resident named Mr Archer would say he'd heard someone cry out in a lamentable tone, Lord, Lord. Mr Archer had thought it was just someone calling to the miller. In all probability, these had been Constable Joseph Lucas' last words on earth. From the crime scene, it seemed as though the policeman had been attacked by more than one assailant. One had smashed him in the head repeatedly with the barrow wheel. The other had swung the cutlass like a club, burying its guard in his skull. By sunrise, Sydney was on high alert. The logical assumption was that the constable had come across the burglars in the brush. He'd challenged them and he'd paid with his life. Yet there was no sign of the desk or its contents. With the citizenry shocked by this savagery, a massive search was soon underway. Or, as the Sydney Gazette would put it, quote, The velocity with which necessary measures of inquiry were adopted could only be equaled by the public anxiety to discover the perpetrators of the inhuman act. But this manhunt wasn't just constables and members of the corps making a hard target search of every boarding house, farmhouse, warehouse, henhouse, outhouse and doghouse. Everyone who was anyone joined in. From the Gazette, quote, The search was animated by the presence of His Excellency the Governor. That was His Excellency Philip Gidley King. His deputy, Lieutenant Governor Colonel William Patterson, was also on the hunt. Along with these bigwigs, quote, Every officer, whether civil or military, exerted himself in endeavouring to trace the assassins. The corps went out under arms and they blockaded all roads and routes out of town. Sydney was small. The crime was recent. The perpetrators, they couldn't have gotten far. Vital leads and clues presented themselves very promptly. For starters, Mary Breeze was able to tell officials exactly who Constable Luca had suspected. Suspicions of Isaac Simmons and his cronies intensified when, in the yard of Sarah Lawrence's boarding house, the Barrow carriage that matched the bloody wheel was discovered. It too was marked with blood. That this evidence had been found by the door of convict constable William Bladders implicated him in the crime. He was taken into custody for questioning, along with Isaac Simmons and several of their associates. Two of these were the convicts Joseph Samuels and Richard Jackson. By nine that morning, John Harris Esquire, surgeon for New South Wales, opened an inquest into the death of Constable Luca. John Harris and four other surgeons crowded around the body to inspect it. Constable Luca had 16 stabs and contusions to his head. His left ear was nearly cut in two. It had been a brutal attack. The people who'd done this had used overkill to ensure he was dead. To ensure he couldn't identify them. The Gazette said, quote, The wretch who buried the iron guard of the cutlass in the head of the unfortunate man had seized the weapon by the blade and levelled the dreadful blow with such fatal force as to rivet the plate in the skull to the depth of more than an inch and a half. As any man grabbing the cutlass blade would risk losing his fingers, chances are it had still been in its sheath when it had been seized from Constable Luca and then swung at him like a club. 
it had only been unsheathed once the constable fell away dead or dying. The suspects were brought into the inquest so they could be interrogated by the surgeons and by the jury of 12 very respectable men. One of these jurors was James Bloodworth. Mr. Bloodworth could really lay claim to having been the man who built Sydney. James had been a convict on the First Fleet, transported for stealing a couple of chooks and a game hen. It was fortunate for Captain Arthur Phillip and for everyone else that Mr. Bloodworth was a master bricklayer and builder. In March 1788, he was made superintendent of builders. As the Gazette would remind readers, quote, The first house in this part of the Southern Hemisphere was by him erected, and most of the public buildings since have been under his direction. That included the first government house, which was just a stone's throw from back row. Now, during the inquest, Mr. Bloodworth would take a leading role in making observations and asking questions. He and other jurors saw that William Bladders had blood on his legs, his feet and his hat. Mr. Bloodworth thought that this blood had come from an artery or a vein. So he asked William Bladders to account for it. The suspect said that the blood had come from flea bites or scratches. Mr. Bloodworth wasn't taking him at his word for that. He wiped off some of the blood, and the suspect's skin beneath bore no bites and no scratches. William Bladders was reported as being at a loss to explain this, until, that is, a person, identified in the Gazette only as a bystander, reminded William Bladders that he, Bladders, had very early that morning assisted in slaughtering a pig. Bladders had held the swine as its throat was cut and then held a basin to collect its blood which had gone everywhere. So yes, that explained it. Why he'd been doing this barefoot and at six in the morning wasn't as readily understandable. William Bladders' predicament worsened when the inquest established that the blood-marked barrow carriage had been found opposite his room. During his interrogation, the suspect was reported as being very much agitated. After an inquest of five hours, Mr. Bloodworth and the fellow jurors returned a verdict of willful murder against William Bladders and some person or persons unknown. William Bladders was to be detained. Other suspects were to be kept in close confinement, pending further investigations and interviews. As Friday came to an end, Sydney was in shock. A constable lay murdered. A handful of men faced the gallows if convicted of this heinous crime. Australia's first hanging under British colonial rule was in Sydney on the 27th of February 1788. That was just one month and one day after the First Fleet arrived. James Bloodworth had been there to see it. That was because all the convicts were made to watch. The unfortunate first victim, Thomas Barrett, was a young scallywag who'd twice in England been reprieved from the noose. Transported to Australia on the Charlotte, Barrett had, while the ship lay offshore at Botany Bay on the 20th of January 1788, engraved a flattened silver pan with a beautiful and intricate depiction of the vessel riding the waves. Thomas Barrett produced the first ever piece of colonial art. But a month after he and the other convicts were landed, it was third time unlucky for the man who'd twice cheated the noose. 
Thomas Barrett was convicted of stealing food from the public stores. Governor Arthur Phillip, who'd previously been against capital punishment except in cases of murder and sodomy, had had enough of thieving convicts depending on his mercy. Thomas Barrett was to hang. He was taken to the fatal tree near the middle of the camp, where a noose was affixed to a branch. Barrett was made to climb a ladder, and this was then pulled away by the provost marshal because the convict who'd been pressed into service as a hangman couldn't go through with it. A plaque on the corner of Essex and Harrington Streets today marks the approximate spot that capital punishment began in the Australian colonies. I've delved much deeper into Australia's first century of hanging in my book Hanging Ned Kelly. The link is in your show notes. But to cut that long story short, in the first decade and a half of white colonisation, hangings in New South Wales were a regular, if not frequent, occurrence. Some 50 men and a couple of women had been strung up down under. While that sounds like a lot, when colonial Australia really embraced the noose from the 1820s to the 1850s, there might be 50 or more people executed in any given year. Some days, a dozen people would be put to death. The majority of these men were not murderers. Usually they'd stolen food, clothes, money, horses, bullocks or sheep. Some had broken into houses. Others had stolen boats. Most death sentences were commuted. But those who went to the noose didn't go to the noose like Ned Kelly. They weren't inside a jail and out of view of the public. There was no platform and no trap door. There was no long drop that, with luck, would snap your neck for an instant death. Hangings in the first 15 years of the colony were scarcely more sophisticated than the very first one. By 1803, the doomed man would be placed in a cart beneath a tree to which his rope was attached. A big crowd would gather. Convicts were still compelled to make up an audience under the armed guard of the corps. But lots of ordinary people turned out for the entertainment value. Hangings for centuries having been a spectacle back home in England. A man of the cloth would minister to the condemned, and the doomed man would then say any last words to the crowd. The hangman, his face not masked, his name and his identity known to all, his salary paid by the government, would place the noose. Then he'd drive the cart away. The doomed man would fall and strangle at the end of his rope for however long it took. This was what it was like to be, as the euphemistic phrase had it, launched into eternity. From 1788 to 1803, hangings were recorded in government documents and in letters and diaries kept by colonists. There was no newspaper. That changed on the 5th of March 1803 when the Sydney Gazette was launched by George Howell, alias Happy George. He was a London printer who was sentenced to transportation for shoplifting. The Gazette's very first edition, a modest four pages, contained Australia's first ongoing news story. This was also the birth of true crime reporting in this country, with the tale updated and expanded in subsequent issues. Fifteen Irish convicts had fled the Castle Hill settlement, and their raids on houses and farms were deemed an insurgency. At one property in Borkham Hills, they allegedly fired a pistol at a servant and the discharge 
As the Gazette reported, shattered his face as to render him a ghastly spectacle. But Happy George, he was just warming up to the sensationalism. At another house, the villains, quote, gave loose to sensuality, equally brutal and unmanly. Resistance was of no avail, for their rapacity was unbridled. Numerous other delinquencies were perpetrated by this licentious banditti, whose ravages, however, could not long escape the certain tread of justice. Happy George reassured readers that constables were loading and preparing their muskets to give chase. But tragedy had struck when, quote, one of the pieces accidentally went off and shot a labouring man through the body, who soon expired. After this allegedly accidental fatal shooting, the escapees were all nabbed by constables and members of the corps. Follow-on issues of the Gazette reported the trials, but the accused men's supposed atrocities were not seemingly given in evidence against them. Their actual exploits seemed relatively minor, even pathetic. Two men had been found in possession of seven silver spoons. Another defendant said he'd escaped only with the hope of crossing the Blue Mountains and walking home to Ireland. But it didn't matter. On the 16th of March, 1803, eight of the Irish banditti faced a charge of entering a house and stealing wheat. The judge, advocate and magistrates, for there were not yet trial juries, would hear this case. The victims of the home invasion and theft, a settler and his servant, testified that the accused men, only one of whom had been armed with a musket, had reassured them they had no intention of hurting anyone. Was that some sort of mitigating circumstance? It was not. The Gazette reported, quote, The evidence being closed, the court, after some minutes' deliberation, returned a verdict. All guilty, death. All up, 14 of the so-called banditti were sentenced to hang. The Gazette on the 26th of March had detailed coverage of the journey made to the gallows by the first three men scheduled to die. They were to be executed near the scene of the crime, at Castle Hill, which would be a lesson to other convicts in the district. The trio, whose names were McDermott, Gannon and Simpson, were first taken up the river to Parramatta. The next day, they were transported in a solemn procession eight miles to the fatal tree. Half of the military from Parramatta surrounded the site, and a little farther off stood a concourse of settlers and convicts and their overseers. Reverend Samuel Marsden, the flogging parson, urged the sinners to repent with his usual fervour. At 11am, the criminals ascended a temporary scaffold that had been erected on the end of the cart. But just as the executioner was about to drive away the vehicle, the word came through. McDermott had been reprieved. Not so Gannon and Simpson, who dropped off the perch and were launched into eternity. The Gazette reported that Simpson, at least, had behaved penitently during the whole of his confinement, right up to the very end. But Gannon, he hadn't taken anything seriously until death was at hand. Then he'd finally listened to the Reverend Marsden. Happy George reported, We feel the highest satisfaction that Gannon had died a penitent. Except the Gazette had it back to front. Actually, Just plain wrong. Happy George had not gone to print before he discovered his error. 
he wasn't able to reset the laboriously handset story. But to his credit, Happy George squeezed in a correction on page one under the headline, Erroneous Statement. Turned out it had been Patrick Gannon who had, quote, behaved himself with a penitence becoming his situation. And it had been Francis Simpson who, quote, died truly impenitent and hardened. True crime reporting has plenty of pitfalls. And very first time out, Happy George had taken a tumble into many of them. Just as an aside, 10 more of the doomed men had their sentences commuted to life, while the fate of two others was never clear. As lively and life and death as the Irish banditti saga had been, Happy George now had a far more sensational story on his ink-smudged fingers with Constable Joseph Luca's murder. Happy George had time on the Friday and the Saturday to write his story, set his type and get the paper printed. In Sunday's issue, dated the 28th of August 1803, the Gazette presented the facts of the case as we've heard them. Using the word mains, M-A-N-E-S, which means the spirit of a dead person, Happy George concluded his first instalment of his coverage with this cliffhanging exhortation, quote, Avenging heaven directs the hand of justice, and the manes of the deceased inspires us with indignation and resentment. Happy George had just ticked another true crime box by taking the role of crusader for justice. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. On Sunday, as the Gazette was being read by those who'd mastered their letters and heard told by those who had not, there were further developments. These, and whatever happened over the next five days, would be passed by word of mouth in the town and countryside. Happy George would have to wait until next issue to provide his day-by-day account. On Sunday morning, the desk was found in the wilds behind Back Row. It was half-concealed in a bush. It had been hidden some 200 yards from Mary Breeze's place and 300 yards from where Constable Luca had been found. On top of the desk were several small sprinkles of blood. All the money was missing, but the documents and other property had been left behind. That there was blood on the desk suggested strongly that it was here that Constable Luca had come across the burglars when they'd come to retrieve their loot. What made sense is that someone had hit him with the barrow and that had sprayed the desk with blood. Constable Luca had fled and his assailants had chased him. When they'd caught up to the policeman, an attacker had brained him with the barrow wheel. He'd likely lost his hat then before stumbling away. More blows had followed. Another attacker had grabbed his cutlass in its sheath and finished him off. The desk was taken to the Lieutenant Governor. 
After he examined it and its contents, the Chief Constable, John Redmond, took charge of this piece of evidence. This police boss would later testify under oath that Isaac Simmons, who was still on duty despite being under suspicion, had been found trying to rub the blood spots from the desk. Also on Sunday, Constable Luca's body was carried to the burial ground, where Sydney Town Hall now stands. The Gazette would report, The solemnity of the funeral was much heightened by the awful circumstances of his death and the doubt and anxiety that existed in every mind. The coffin simply bore his initials and his age, J.L., 38 years. Constable Luca's brother officers, who'd been part of the procession, paid their respects to their fallen comrade, and four constables lowered the coffin into the ground. But this seemed an abomination. That was because one of them was Isaac Simmons, who, as the Gazette noted, quote, is at present in confinement on suspicion. On Monday, the Lieutenant Governor and Magistrates interrogated some of the suspects. Richard Jackson and Joseph Samuels were brought forward. They denied having anything to do with the murder or with the burglary. But two witnesses said they'd seen two men out the back of Mary Breeze's place at about 6 o'clock on the Thursday evening. The witnesses said that one of these men strongly resembled Joseph Samuels. The prisoners denied that they'd been there. They claimed they'd been with Isaac Simmons at his place from 10 past 6 until after 8 that evening. Isaac Simmons was interrogated next. He admitted nothing and corroborated the stories offered by the other men. Isaac Simmons, William Bladders, Joseph Samuels and Richard Jackson were to be kept in confinement. But in a bewildering and boneheaded move, Isaac Simmons and Joseph Samuels were kept in the same cell. If they needed to cook up a story, this was their chance to do so. Later that day, William Bladders and another minor suspect were again interviewed. They didn't crack. On Tuesday morning, it was the same story. All the prisoners were questioned again, but as the Gazette put it, no further evidence was given. Each man, if he was convicted of murder or only of burglary, would face the noose. Usually, someone would crumble and agree to give evidence against the others. Spill your guts and you might save your neck. But these men remained staunch in their silence. This suggested organisation, obedience to a leader. Then the crack came. Later on Tuesday, Isaac Simmons unbuttoned his lips. He told John Harris that his cellmate, Joseph Samuels, had spoken about the robbery. Further, Isaac Simmons reckoned, Joseph Samuels wanted to be a witness for the Crown. Joseph Samuels was summoned. Briefly, this man had been born in 1781, so he was then just 22 years old. He'd been transported for seven years for larceny in June 1801, and he'd arrived in Sydney in December of that year. At first, Joseph Samuels, confronted by Mr. Harris and the magistrates, denied what his cellmate Isaac Simmons had claimed. He knew nothing about the burglary, he knew nothing about the murder, as he'd already said. But 
Under questioning, he incriminated himself sufficiently that it was clear he was guilty of something. Joseph agreed to talk, but he'd only do so if he was guaranteed immunity. If he told the truth, would Mr. Harris intercede with the bench so that he wouldn't be punished? This was agreed. Joseph Samuels had saved his neck. Joseph denied all knowledge of Constable Luca's murder, but he confessed that he and another constable named John Russell had committed the burglary at May Breeze's brothel. Joseph Samuels said he'd been the one to prise open the door, but it had been John Russell who'd carried out the desk. This was a breakthrough, but was it true? As the Gazette put it, quote, The subtle villainy of Samuels required ingenuity to deal with. Mr. Harris demanded what had he done with the money and reminded him that if he did not discover all the circumstances, the security would be withdrawn. Under these interrogations and threats, Joseph Samuel said he could show Mr. Harris where the cash had been stashed. He led the authorities into the bush behind Back Row. In one spot, the Spanish dollars were found. And in another, the three guineas, along with some beads, silver teaspoons and other items Mary Breeze had neglected to mention had been in the desk. What about Richard Jackson? The magistrates asked. Was he involved? Joseph Samuel said, no, he was not. But, as the Gazette reported, quote, there was too much cause to presume the contrary, and it afterwards appeared that Jackson had buried two two-pound pieces behind a fig tree in W. Noah's garden. That day, the authorities found all the money that had been stolen. All of it, except for those copper coins. John Russell was questioned next, and he denied Joseph Samuel's story. He said he'd had nothing to do with the burglary. On Wednesday, Richard Jackson faced questioning. He tried to plead innocence, but the authorities knew too much. So, Richard Jackson said he was willing to confess, but he also wanted immunity. With a guarantee made on the condition of good information being received, Richard Jackson now spun his version of events in which he and Joseph Samuels had carefully planned the brothel break-in. John Russell had been a last-minute ring-in. Richard Jackson and Joseph Samuels had run into him on the street. They'd asked him to stand guard, act as a lookout. In this capacity, John Russell had had about as much value as a cup of cold piss. When Richard Jackson and Joseph Samuels had come out of Mary's place, the man had been gone. As they had with Joseph Samuels, the magistrates asked Richard Jackson what proof did he have of any of this. Well, he led them straight to the copper coins, which had been buried near to where Constable Luca's body had been found. Obviously, this seemed to indicate that Richard Jackson had been in on both the robbery and the murder. But that was now by the by, because if his information was solid, he couldn't be prosecuted. Richard Jackson next took officials to another spot in the brush. This, he said, was where, as the Gazette quoted, the desk had been first opened, which Samuels had before attempted, or rather pretended to do, without success. This angle suggested that Joseph Samuels had been trying some sort of double-cross. 
as evidence that Richard Jackson was telling the truth that the desk had been brought here first, were found on the ground pins, needles and other items that had been kept in the piece of furniture by Mary Breeze. Richard Jackson again denied having anything to do with the murder of Constable Luca. He was returned to custody and would be kept on a short leash until he was needed to testify. Next, the bench was shown a shirt and three handkerchiefs that had just been found in Isaac Simmons' place. The shirt was blood-spattered. The handkerchiefs were heavily blood-stained. Isaac Simmons was brought in and asked to explain. He said he suffered bloody noses, and the spots on the shirt were from when he'd gutted a fish or killed a duck that Joseph Samuels had stolen. The bench, having heard this, the Gazette reported, quote, passed no opinion on the subject. It seemed they were playing their cards close to their chests. Joseph Samuels was brought back in. Now, he admitted that he had lied previously, implicating John Russell and seeking to protect Richard Jackson. Joseph Samuels had added perjury to his list of offences. Why had he literally risked his neck for Richard Jackson? He said it was because he had a particular regard for the man. He liked him, Richard Jackson, who just testified against Joseph Samuels. By lying, Joseph Samuels had invalidated his immunity. All five men were remanded to custody. On Sunday the 4th of September... The Sydney Gazette printed all of these developments, its day-by-day account a little bit like serial instalments. There was nothing new in the following issue, but on the 18th of September, it was reported that Richard Jackson had committed to giving evidence in the burglary trial of Joseph Samuels and John Russell. Soon after, Isaac Simmons and William Bladders were set for trial for murder. In the 25th of September Gazette, George Howe had the first part of the two-part finale that was to tie together all the previous episodes while leaving a tantalising mystery and offering up an unbelievable twist ending. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. Part 2 of Our First Cop Killer, The Luckiest Man Unhung and The Birth of Australian True Crime Reporting will be out very soon. If you're an Apple or Patreon supporter, you can hear it right now ad-free. You can also get access via the free trial option. Links are in your show notes. As always, thanks for listening.